TYA Talks, the podcast. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of TTYA Talks with me, Irene TTYA. I started this platform as a way to connect successful women who work across the creative industries and sports. And today's guest, guys, you know, because you know every episode we need to be focused. (laughs) Otherwise known as Downtown Sweetheart, you know, Vashti represents one of New York's most well-known multi-talented creatives you know her resume includes fashion designer video director party promoter you know artist and creative director she's not only someone that I've known for over 10 years but I think for me she kind of mastered the whole ideals of developing your personal brand and you know Vashti has kind of developed that whole influencer business model if you ask me anyway but you know before it even became a marketing buzzword she was influencing so without further ado I'd love to kind of welcome to TTYA Talks my long-term friend Vashti Kola guys let's be focused (laughs) hi babes how are you i'm excellent thank you so much for your time today did you like my intro there thank you i'm I'm gonna need to copy and paste that and use that for every intro i do (laughs) so i say with kind of every guest i kind of really always ask let's start from the beginning because i think it's really important for people to see the journey and the history so kind of talk to us about your childhood your heritage where you grew up, where you went to school, what you studied, and then we'll kind of get into the introductions of your kind of career. So basically, so my parents came to the United States for a better way of life, um, settled down in Albany, New York, which is two hours north of New York City, had me, so I'm the first American born in my family. Um, And both of my parents, their background, which I think is important to note, is that they are very working class. They didn't attend high school. They had very big families and had to care for their siblings. So, you know, my dad's a car mechanic. My mom ended up working at a nursing home. And I sort of was born with this sort of creative obsession as a kid, just wanting to make Mm -hmm. art constantly, which I think is natural for any kid. It's just sometimes, unfortunately, young kids kind of get, you know, the, the inspiration of art gets taken away from them because they aren't doing it quote unquote properly or they're not coloring within the lines. So for me, I think that I really was able to look past all of that and just sort of focus on like, I love art. I want to make something. Um, and, you know, also for me, it was an expression. It was also a way for me to get lost into other worlds. Um, you know, having said you know, the bit about my family and, you know, I love my family and care about them, but uh, my childhood wasn't very um, safe for a child. And so there was, there was physical abuse in the home and, um, you know, which results in, you know, mental and, you know, spiritual abuse. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So for me, my art was a way to escape. And it was fine. It, w- it was a way for me to get through it. Um, and then, you know, I grew up being able to, to you know, accomplish a lot with my art. Like I was winning art contests at school. I was, you know, in the local paper for my artwork, which was cool. You know, there's many layers to the story. So I'll try and go into that. (laughs) At the same time, so I grew up in like the hood of Albany, uh, which is a very downtown area and um, predominantly black. There were a couple of um, Caribbean families, but for the most part, it was like a, a black neighborhood. It was very hood. 
And, you know, at that time in the 90s when I was growing up, it was not considered cool to do anything outside of the norm. So the norm for us was wearing, you know, Nikes and Jordans and baggy clothes and starter jackets and fitting into a mold, which was Mm. a beautiful mold. Like that style and that look is something that I still am obsessed with and still like to dabble in as an adult who's way past the 90s. But um, for me, I also wanted to do other things. I was interested in skateboarding. I was interested in music that was not hip hop, which was, again, not considered cool. It was like you were immediately weird or trying to be white, which was the term. So for me, it was junior high, especially was a, a troubling time because I was bullied, was really at a tough time in my life. But I feel like that bully period of my life was probably a blessing now that I look back on it because I realized that instead of trying to fit in with the crowd, I realized that the crowd rejected me. So now it's time for me to just do what I want to do. And I don't care what people will ever say. So I think that that has has sort of helped me. And then from there, uh, I graduated. I got a scholarship to a really good high school outside of uh, my neighborhood, which was now in the suburbs. And now my school was completely white. I was like one, like one of three young girls of color at the school. Um, but I had a really beautiful time there. I learned a lot about music and about how other people live their lives. I mean, just even having dinner with, you know, a white suburban family was eye opening to me. I didn't I'd never experienced that. And, you know, I think to me that experience at that school was not even about the education. It was just about being exposed to other people and their ways of life, um, which helps you in the long term, because I feel like the world, especially if you crave being out in the world, it's important to understand that we're all different cultures. We're all from different parts of the world. And so everyone navigates through it differently. So that really helped me. And I think that maybe part of that I should mention that would help my story and help the listeners is that you know, while I was at the school, I was very much interested in other things still. Like I wanted to explore music and live shows and like skateboard and do all of these things. So I was very much rebellious and very much explorative as a young person. So for Mm -hmm. me, I found myself in comic book stores, hanging out at skate shops, hanging out, going to uh, this local tattoo shop because they had really amazing art books and hanging out. So I kind of found a home away from home with like shops and hangouts and parks where I met other kids like myself. And I think for me, that was a huge part of my story that, you know, you don't really get to hear this. These are the stories that like really build us right as influencers. It's just it's there's a, a full story behind us as opposed to just Instagram posts, cute you know, um, great collaboration. So I feel like, you know, this story is important to tell because it's, it's the hunger and the discovery that you have that really formulates who you become. And I think in, in order to stay relevant, it's also important to keep that hunger and that discovery. So yeah, so part of that journey, again, in high school was, you know, hanging out with a whole bunch of misfit kids and learning about art and learning about music and, you know, just exploring the world. I ended up actually working at that tattoo shop, which was a great experience for me because I had these grown men who were tattooed from like the forehead down, but were father figures to me and were teaching me about art 
and teaching me about business. And so that really helped me. And then I, I ended up, you know, applying for art school um, in New York City. I applied to film school, particularly, and ended up going to the School of Visual Arts was a huge part of my journey and why I am where I am. And so, yeah, so I, I went to New York City, started um, school at the School of Visual Arts, studied film, and at the same time... You left Albany behind. You moved to the big bad world of NYC. <laughs> yeah. And then for me, because I'm like a true tourist, I like to keep all of my routines the same. So I came to New York and then I went to the comic book shop I, which was St. Mark's comic book shop, which was legendary. I went to the music shops, which was like Fat Beats, which is also legendary. Uh, I hung out at skate shops, which was Supreme. And then that's also legendary. So it's just, I just naturally did what I did back home. And it just was also part of my journey, meeting the people there and, uh, you know, becoming who I would become. When you transitioned into kind of leaving everything that was the norm, but still implementing some of your norm when you come into New York, how did that now first um, leverage you when you started actually thinking about your career and where you wanted to go to? Because there's so many attributes, like you said, it was skate shops and tattoos and again, things that didn't really fit into the norm, but you were exposed to those things. So then when you started to think about career, where did you think in which direction you wanted to go in? I think... So back when I was in junior high and high school, I knew I was good at art and I knew that I could easily get a job in graphic design or somewhere in that field. But for me, I also was very interested in fashion and very interested in film. And to me, again, like fashion was something that I could do. I could sew a little bit, not very well. I could sew and I could sketch um, clothing, but I felt like film was a world that I didn't really know. And my high school and my junior high didn't have proper art programs. So I knew that studying film was something that was important to me. And I knew that with all of my other interests going on, that I wanted to accomplish something in film and then do other things. So for me, I think having a tomboy aesthetic, which at the time was not accepted, it wasn't like cute or that stylish or that it was just like why are you wearing that that's inappropriate (laughs) so me deciding to direct film was something that was like okay I'm gonna be behind the camera no one's gonna care that I'm not wearing you know like a dress so to me I was like okay I, I can get away with working in this field and not have to fit into any norm but again I mean to your your question if I'm answering your question to me, I felt like I was going into the world of film strictly and that I would be directing under an, um, an alias. I wanted to be have an alias that w- have, was gender fluid so people didn't know what I looked like or didn't know anything mm-hmm. about me, um, which quickly changed. But um, that was the intention and that was the idea. So talk to us a little bit about your kind of journey and starting at Def Jam and how now you kind of was equating to now venturing into the magical world of music. (laughs) Yeah, so I know my story might not make a lot of sense to a lot of people who aren't familiar with me, but um, so I came to New York City, was studying film. Um, and at the same time was working at Stussy, um, which is owned by James Jebbia. The New York store is owned by James Jebbia, who also owns Supreme. So it was the same family. So I was under that sort of umbrella being, you know, friends with all the guys that went on to do their own things. Um, and just also being in such an important scene, which at the time 
none of us were aware of. It was just like, this mm-hmm. is, this is home base. This is where we hang out. These are our friends. And this is where we feel comfortable. I mean, obviously now it's fast forward and it's like, Oh my God, you know, the iconic movement that Supreme has been and all that. So that's also been a, you know, it's been a nice blessing to have been a part of that experience. Um, but anyway, so I, you know, I'm working, I, uh, graduate I'm, and at this point as a filmmaker I'm shopping my reel around and your reel is essentially your portfolio mm-hmm. it's your body of work that you created so I was shopping it around to production houses and um finally got signed to a production house that actually signed Anthony Mandler who is a phenomenal photographer and and also director they also had signed Nabil who's phenomenal director I mean it was such an, a dream roster to be a part of. So I started off my career directing there. And at the time, as a young director, there wasn't much work and there was no social media. So there was no way to really get yourself out there mm-hmm. other than literally grinding your way through. Um, so I was directing, but I was also writing music video concepts for other directors. So at the same time, it was like, you know, that was going. I got a job at Nike ID, which is you know, a part of sneakerhead history. It was the first studio that was basically private. You had to be invited to walk into this space. And uh, if you were invited to design your own pair of sneakers, um, you know, personalized by you with a color palette and very specific um, elements. So it was a very cool process to be a part of. Uh, That was you know, initially a system that was designed towards like VIPs, influencers, people in the sneaker world, but then it slowly started to open up a little bit here and there where mm-hmm. you know, regular people could come in. And that was an amazing experience for me. So at the same time, I'm like directing, doing my directing thing, working at Nike ID, which was a great experience. And then I got an offer to come into Def Jam as um, director of creative services. And it's sort of like the idea of it being like creative director, but really being someone who was like the extension of the street into corporate world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the woman that had um, brought this position to me, Grace, who's an incredible woman, um, Grace Harry, she wanted me to take all of the aesthetic and ideas and the culture that I knew what was happening on the underground and be able to bring that to the forefront in these worlds, you know, mm-hmm. um, for people who aren't familiar, a lot of times at record labels, the artists are focused on creating the music, but then, you know, sometimes they need assistance in like having an authentic look and having an authentic music video and the what's the campaign going to be. So it was sort of my role to, um, envision what some of these ideas could be for these artists which was I mean mind-blowing because at this point I'm this kid who's never had like a real job I mean let me preface I've never had a corporate office job Mm -hmm. um I've only worked retail and worked in like restaurants so I was shocked that anyone wanted that anyone would listen to my idea and then actually use my idea so it was an amazing experience um but at the same time, it was sort of draining as a creative. I, I'd never experienced being a part of such a powerful business machine. And it was exciting and it was really fascinating to watch because I learned so much about how business works, even down to how to properly write an email and how to properly speak to other people on email. Because that's also something that I don't think young people 
really understand so much because it's not taught. These are things that aren't taught to you. You have to exactly. kind of learn it. Learn in, in the in field. Yeah. Right. And you might actually write a couple of emails that will burn you, but you will learn <laughs> from that. So that was great. But at the same time, I was drained and I felt um, that I needed a change. And so towards the end of my time at Def Jam, I um, had gotten a copy of Kanye's mixtape that, you know, everyone in the office had gotten a copy of his new mixtape that hadn't come out yet. And uh, it was a mixtape with Lupe Fiasco and Pharrell. And I mean, that, the mixtape was amazing. I loved it. But there was one song in particular that I loved and I really wanted to make a video for it. Um, it was called Us Placers. Mm-hmm. And... I, you know, I said to myself, I know that none of these artists will want me to make a video for it. I mean, or, or be a part of it. So let me just make a video for it on my own for fun. I use my own money. I ask my friends to help and I pulled together this really, you know, cute, funny little video that was a representation of these gentlemen. I just got childlike versions of them. And it was perfect. And it really, I posted it online and it got tons of views. Each artist reached out and was like, oh my God, that was so cool. Thank you for doing that, whatever. Um, And so that kind of helped my directing career, um, which is something I want to point out to anyone who's listening, young or older, who's trying to figure out their career. And uh, sometimes people ask me, how can I get to another place in my career? And I say that like, it's really important to just do projects. Like it doesn't have to be for a brand. You don't have to be hired. You don't have to wait for that. If you feel so compelled, you should make anything. And honestly, social media is great because you can post it as if it's done for a brand. You, I mean, it could be mm-hmm. inspired for a brand and then do it, you know? So I think that's a really excellent way to get noticed because it really helps me uh, in my career, because at that point, no one really knew my directing work. I was going to go on to say, because then you later ended up doing a roster of videos for artists such as Justin Bieber, Kendrick Lamar. How did you kind of approach directing, bearing in mind that, you know, like you said, you kind of were still really young. And I and, and I think one of the things that I think is important to know is when you are in that corporate structure, there's so many layers to it and so many layers to approval that sometimes it can get a little bit overwhelming as well. How did you go on to making sure that your ideas kind of stayed true to what you wanted them to be and then to actually go on to work with artists such as Kendrick Lamar and Justin Bieber? Yeah, I think, you know, I think for me... My biggest inspiration or desire to fulfill was seeing that when I looked at music videos and I saw like the lead girl or the the love interest girl, it was never a girl I identified with. And like, mm-hmm. I, I'm, and I'm also speaking for girls like us, like you and, mm-hmm. you know, just a girl who is different, who, mm-hmm. you know, who sure we can put on a dress and heels, but like, but most of the time we're in sneakers and we're in like cut off shorts <laughs> and a t-shirt. So for me, I felt like it was a very like antiquated idea of what the female lead needed to look like. I'm not saying for some people, sure, that's your vision, that's your vision. But there was also a vision that I think wasn't being met of the regular girl or the girl who is the tomboy who was also the cute girl. So that was something that was important to me to sort of like express. It was also a way for a video girl, quote unquote video girl, to have more personality because I think oftentimes I would see these girls and I'm like, yeah, sure, they're beautiful, but they don't look comfortable in that outfit or they don't look like they're 
holding their own, you know, in this scene. So I just, I always wanted um, the women in music videos to sort of have a sense of independence, personality and strength and to look like me and my friends. So I think that that was also something that helped set me apart. And again, you know, I think at that time, labels were open to hearing those ideas. I think the difficult part with labels became, you know, sometimes trying to convince a creative idea that was outside the box. And again, for me, the idea of, you know, like a hip hop video or an R&B video, a lot of times they kind of fit into a box of what that creative looked like. So it was sometimes sort of hard to break out of that for me as a creative wanting to see more and for me wanting to have or need the artist and their team to be on board for that. That sort of became like a challenge sometimes. Yeah. And I was going to also ask like what some of the takeaways that you learned from being in that corporate structure and how did you implement them when you went on to set up your own business? Um, I think at the time for me, what I did not understand was I had a vision and I wanted it to be the vision. And I didn't understand how to give the artist, the label and the team what they really wanted without feel, without the feeling of, I just like sold my soul. Sacrifice. Yeah. 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 So now I think that when I'm looking back on it, I, I realized that as a young green artist coming into this business, I was, um, I really felt like I wanted it to be more of like this expression of art and creativity. And, but you know, that has to happen with everyone else in the room. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's actually unfair of me to have wanted it to be up, you know, in a different way. You know, I always felt like if me and the artist agree, then that's it. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Then, you know, you have to take into consideration the manager and the, you know, the A&R and everyone else. But, you know, sometimes what their needs are have nothing to do with the art. And I think that that's what really mm. helped, helped me up because sometimes it's, a, it's about the sponsor, getting in the 15 seconds of the sponsor and this and that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think that that was maybe something that complicated things for me more than, more than anything. Well, fashion and, well, music and fashion definitely interlinked so even when we talk about some of the artists that you've worked with and now you kind of going on to being in the fashion realm what kind of inspired you to start your own fashion label and you know I think it's nice to talk about I think one thing that I really wanted to pick up on this is that there isn't when people put you in this creative bracket they always feel that you have to be a director or you have to be a fashion designer and I think I think one thing that we've all been able to show over the years is many of these are multifaceted and many of them intertwine with each other what was your inspiration behind your clothing label Violet? Um, I think for me it was just that I've always worn boy clothes not I mean by choice but also because there wasn't an option for me and you know it's I've always been in streetwear and you know I love you know brands like Supreme and Awake and and Noah and and I was just like but you know what there's there's not like a, a female brand and there's a lot of amazing female brands but I guess I didn't feel like any which one spoke to me directly mm. so I just felt like you know and why not start my own brand? Like, why not do something that felt like me, um, which offered things that I could wear that people who, you know, liked also they could wear. So that's really how it started. And when I left Def Jam uh, in 2007, I think what happened was it was sort of like a panic attack because I was like, oh my God, I just walked away from a weekly check 
to nothing. Now, what am I going to do? And I was like, oh my God. Like, And it was honestly the best experience for me because, because I was panicked and I felt like a bird falling out of a nest. I was like, okay, I need to fly. I need to figure it out. What do I need to do? What do I want to do? So instead of mm. overthinking the creative of what should I do? I was like, okay, just do it. Just stop overthinking it. Just do it. Nike, perfect. <laughs> the everlasting slogan. <laughs> Life mood. <laughs> yeah, and I tend to overthink everything. So I just did it. I just started my brand. And I think that, again, that's also something, you know, for anyone who's listening is something that will help you as much as that might sound like a shocking, disturbing choice to ever make is walking away from a job that's unfulfilling like interestingly enough can really bring you to the place that you want to be because you know it's like walking on hot coals you just do it like you have to do it just do it like and you figure it out without overthinking but and what is it about kind of fashion that you love because you've like you said you've always kind of had your own identity and you know how do you think people in this day now can kind of get noticed for original style because I feel it is a little bit tough now I mean for me my attraction to fashion was always just well originally it was because I couldn't afford anything nice as a kid growing up so as much as I'm known for a girl in streetwear and having designed the first pair of Jordans I couldn't afford Nikes or Jordans or anything as a kid and um I think that because I couldn't have nice things or expensive things, which sometimes are equal to each other, but I would design them and draw them because I felt like, Oh, in my mind, I'm making it. So I kind of feel ownership over it. Um, and that's sort of how I got into fashion, just wanting what I didn't have and creating what I wanted and what I could potentially have in the future. So that was that. I think that for me, if I'm giving someone advice, on how to get noticed. Um, I personally think it's really noticeable and strong when someone has a very unique look, but a consistent look. And even creatively, like if you look back on some of the most iconic artists, like if you think about Michael Jackson, you might think about his glittery glove. If you think about Prince, you might think about like a frilly blouse. Like you mm-hmm. think about these artists and you have a look in your mind. For me, I think it's important to not cycle through different genres and looks too quickly. I personally um, am a firm believer in like having a signature and evolving it. Like it doesn't have to be the same outfit every day for 10 years, but it could be something that just has staples that are you. I think that's important. That's something that stands out. And it's also important as a new person coming into a scene and coming into the the world that they want to be a part of. It's like, you want people to always be able to say, oh, I, I remember that person. Yeah, that's that's what they look like. This is how they dress. Um, as opposed to like constantly evolving where people are like, I kind of know that person, but I don't. Like you have to kind of establish yourself in a look if you're not established, mm. in my opinion. And I think that, you know, a lot of people can get away with copying other people's looks. But I think for people who know better, who are the people who have been in this game for a long time, you see it and you might be able to say, Oh yeah, that's cool. But you don't necessarily respect it. So while you can get away with copying other people's looks and I'm not saying you shouldn't, but 
Um, I am saying that people who kind of know the difference will know it's inauthentic, even though you're getting away with it. So I personally think it's important to always be authentic, um, not to use people as Pinterest boards, like existing people in their looks. I just, I think that it's important to really explore what it is that you like because you're, if you're wearing something, you need to feel comfortable in that. You need to be the person that rocks and represents that. And you know, to me, it's like, if you're wearing a costume, like clowns wear costumes. Like, you know, it sounds funny. <laughs> um, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you, you should Bats. be wearing things that are like you. And even if that's just a white t-shirt and blue jeans, like that's a look. That's a look that mm. no one's really known for wearing right now. I mean, that's something that could easily become like your iconic signature. And so I don't know. Yeah, I think that that's, those things are important. So let's talk about collaborations because you've done everything from G-Shock to Puma and, you know, you were the first girl who was like a non-athlete to have a Jordan collaboration. Let's talk about kind of how that came about and what was the inspiration behind your design? Yes. So I went from being a kid who couldn't afford Jordans or Nikes or anything name brand and it fueled my obsession with sneakers. Um... When I got a job in high school, I bought myself sneakers nonstop. In college, bought myself sneakers. It was, wasn't until I was in film school that I bought myself a pair of Jordans for the first time. And I remember going to Foot Locker to get these Jordans and mm. spending the money I didn't have on them and just loving it, being obsessed with these sneakers and just everything that they represented. And, you know, for me growing up in the nineties and not being an athlete, but being a young kid who was obsessed with the culture of hip hop and sports and, you know, wanting to be in that, in that world, having a pair of Jordans really made me feel like I was a part of it. Um, you know, Michael Jordan obviously represents so many things in greatness of mm-hmm. culture and sports and history and everything. So um, to me, it was just like having this, like, this trophy finally. And, you know, I didn't stop there. I just went on to buy more Jordans and more sneakers. And, you know, at the time I remember my sister who's older than me was like, why are you wasting your money on these things? You're never going to bring you anything. Like this isn't going to help you in your future. And I was like, "Ah." I mean, I was like, I know, but I also like love it. Um, And yeah. So when I moved to New York city, I, just wore what I wore in Albany, which was like baggy clothes and sneakers and Jordans. And at the time, no girl like outside of the hood wore Jordans. It wasn't a look. It wasn't a thing. It was like, that's what hood girls wore But in Manhattan or other boroughs that didn't have hoods. It was like, it was like not a thing. Like girls were like more fashion forward and like wearing, you know, a different look, cool look, but different. So I kind of stood out always and trying to go to nightclubs in Jordans didn't happen. A lot of times I was turned away for wearing a t-shirt and Jordans. Um, but it became my look. And I think that that's also what helped me stand out at a time when there was no social media. So no one was copying other people's looks and there was no template. And so I got noticed and fast forward to 2009, I had a birthday party. I should also mention that when you're in these creative worlds, you often become friends with people who are also about their careers about to take off. So I was friends with Cuddy, um, who came to my birthday party and we were just friends. He was working at the vape store. I was working at Nike ID. We were totally like just downtown little 
dirt bags. Um, but he came to my birthday party and I remember um, my friends who were helping me put it together were like, what do you want your birthday cake to be? And I was like, oh my God. I'm like, I want it to be my favorite pair of sneakers. I want it to be a pair of Jordan threes. So I had my birthday cake in the giant form of a cake. <laughs> and, and it was amazing. Um, and it made headlines. So I posted those photos on my blog and then Hype Beast at the time reposted it. Other blogs picked it up and reposted it. And it was sort of a big story. Like a lot of, it got a lot of attention. And uh, um, actually ran into someone a couple weeks later who I knew worked at brand Reebok or Reebok. His name is Aster Chambers. Mm-hmm. And he, he and I catch up, we're just chatting. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm working at Jordan now and I'm like oh my god that's so funny I'm like did you see my birthday cake did you hear about it and I'm showing him the pictures and he's like oh my god that's right you're really weirdly obsessed with Jordans and I'm like yeah and he's like you should design one and I'm like okay that's probably never gonna happen but sure I was like yeah that sounds cool and he's like no like if you're interested like we can talk about it I'll call you tomorrow and see what we can do and I'm like okay so literally that's what happened. Talk about it. <laughs> yeah, and the rest is history. Oh my God, so, so fire. I feel like for me, what kind of stood out is when I saw them, I just thought, they're just so you. They're just so you. And, and I thought, do you know what? It's so nice at that time as well to see a female being able to do her things because I think obviously it's an athlete shoe and it's always geared to, it was at that time, I think before that kind of geared to it being a streetwear, street culture shoe, but it was always around the sport. So seeing it on a female and you having your own twist on it what kind of inspired some of the design inspiration behind it well so my brand is called violet and so i wanted the shoe to be a violet color um it was just such a representation of me but i also wanted the hue of the shoe to be a tone that was feminine but still masculine like i didn't want it to feel like a shoe that only belonged to a woman i wanted it to feel like a guy would see it and be like, I want that shoe. So that was very important to me to make it as like gender neutral as possible mm-hmm. while still, you know, expressing a purple color. Um, it was also the 20th anniversary or 25th anniversary of the Jordan two. So I added in silver because that's what you give someone for that anniversary. And in the interior of the shoe, there's also Amber, which is also something you give someone for an anniversary. So I wanted to be respectful of the anniversary and of the the silhouette of the shoe, but I also wanted it to represent me, but also the women who would end up buying it, wearing it. I felt like the opportunity wasn't about me per se. It was about all of us who have never been able to have a shoe that we loved in our size so and what kind of impact do you think comes from these kind of collaborations especially with like tastemakers like yourselves and these large brands um because i feel like you've probably added value to that as well as showing it in a different narrative and for them collaborating with you but what do you think kind of the messaging that kind of comes from yeah collaborating with tastemakers like yourself i think it opens up the conversation of people who are influencing different worlds that maybe these brands aren't aware of. Um, And I think that that was the interesting thing. When I did the shoe in 2010, it wasn't, there wasn't a big marketing push. There wasn't a lot of support from the brand. And I don't think any of that was malicious or negative. I just think that they had never anticipated what this was going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that 
the realization of what that collaboration was, was that, you know, I'm a non-athlete. I'm not, you know, I'm kind of known, but I'm not that famous. Um, but I am someone who represents something and others in a community that they find important and that they know is important. And ultimately that they probably weren't aware of. And now they're seeing, okay, wow. Like, you know, this whole time we're chasing this celebrity and this person, and maybe these Mm -hmm. people don't even care about sneakers. And then you really do have people from a culture who are, you know, not only fans, but they are somehow the glue that really keeps this like sneaker community together. And then we live and breathe sneakers. So I think for me, it was, it was important. And I think that, you know, it, again, it opens up the conversation, you know, it's who else is out there, you know, Alayli May has her Jordans and she's killing it. She's doing a phenomenal job and Melody Asani. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. And it's like all of these incredible women who it's like, you know, they exist. And, um, you know, I think that that's where social media to me is, is also a bonus. I mean, there's, you know, ups and downs with everything, but I think in this sense, social media really gives a platform to these people who have been grinding away, doing their thing and really Mm -hmm. inspiring us in our own world. And now that these brands you know, are in touch with social media, they can see, oh, like this person does that. And, you know, oh, and they live in that country and they live in that city. And it's like, I think that's really important. And I know we kind of touched on, but I'm going to bounce back to music a little bit because I know we've jumped from music into fashion and I'm going to bounce it back to music. But I've been to a few 1992 parties and, you know, I think at that time when, and I came quite late, I was going when you had when it was kind of downtown and I think for me the impact of what I saw was you know that kind of aesthetic of like you said earlier about not really being able to get into a club being yourself and I feel like what you guys what your party with Oscar kind of represented is come as you are be who you are and just come and celebrate and have a good time how did you and Oscar kind of link link up and maybe what were some of your favorite 1992 parties that you did yes okay so the 1992 party is a 90s themed party, um, 90s and now 2000s party um, that started in 2006. And it came out of me and my friend Oscar, who were just sort of just <sighs> depressed with going out to nightclubs, you know, in New York City. And I'm sure a lot of other um, cities where people are listening from have experienced this. There's like, a you know, door club, the 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 door at the club has like a, you know, a VIP line and a dress code and this and that. And so it's sort of daunting, um, you know, to kind of experience that. And it's also to go through the rejection of it is really embarrassing. And I've been rejected plenty of times and I still get rejected. Um, <laughs> but I think that the idea of it is just so shocking and disturbing. And, you know, I think that, I'm not that kind of personality. Like I don't want someone to feel that way. And I think that with Oscar and I, we were just having a a creative conversation one night and we were like, Oh, wouldn't that be cool? You just have a party and who cared, who cares who showed up and what they were wearing. And you just had a conversation with them and you just like talk to people for who they were and not for what clothing they had on their back or what shoes they had on their feet. And I was like, yeah, that would be really nice. And we just decided, okay, let's just try, let's throw a party and just invite our friends. And we started that in 2006. We were doing it monthly and, uh, and it was amazing because like the first month it took off, like without having any, 
real like anticipation of it, it just took off. We got written up in the New York Times. Um, we actually got invited to Paris with the Pen on Chocolate guys who are yes. now doing their things, you know, <laughs> Stefan with Pigal and just everyone. Um, so I, I met some like very international friends that way, which was very cool. And, um, you know, I did the party and we did the party in Paris and uh, Amsterdam and, uh, and the party's been running ever since. And so I think, yeah, like people show up to the party and it's just the feeling and the vibe that I try to express through my own actions is like, I talk to people. I'm like, Oh, where are you from? How'd you hear about the party? Like that's basically how the party has gone from its inception to even now. So I'm my, uh, my goal is that people, when they come to the party, they meet someone new, they have a conversation, they dance with a stranger, you know, you have a good time and, um, without judgment. So that's really the idea and theme of the party. Do you have any of your favorites to date? Yeah, so some of my favorites, there have been so many good parties. There's so, been so many. Yeah, I, you know, I feel like, man, I feel like the party where we hung out, there was a couple, but I have really good photos from when you and Grace were there. And it was just, mm -hmm. it was, A-Side was there. And it was just very, like, it was London meets New York. That felt very cool to me. That was, like, a lot of fun. There were a lot of parties that we did with themes. And so, um it, it kind of brought out different kinds of people at that time. I feel like, I don't know. They, I mean, they're also good. And even now in the last six months, the parties we've been doing have been mind blowing. Like, honestly, I can't even really pinpoint one specific one. For me, it was important because I came at a time when I think you would, you were at the beginning of maybe doing brand sponsored parties. And I think at that time, there weren't that many parties that were going on that brands were really investing in because I think now we take it for granted that having doing parties grows your audience and having an audience is a demographic, which obviously brands want to tap into. But at that time, you're not thinking, okay, my party is bringing in these kind of demographic and I'm going to be able to partner with this brand. It was all very organic and I think I came to like a Red Bull party that you did and there was a photo booth and there was all sorts of jazzy things going on. And Cuddy performing at that? Yeah, Cuddy performed. And then I came to another one and I think Diddy was there. It was just so crazy because it was like you never really knew who you could see. And I think our London equivalent of that was Yo-Yo, was our equivalent of your party because again, it was, sim it was like always a vibe, always good names, but people really came. It was like in the middle of West London, but had a door policy of you could just do what you want. So I think like that was our equivalent of your party but I even remember coming to one of your parties at Webster Hall when you moved to Webster Hall and then just like seeing like being on a platform now because then you get to really kind of see the room and see who's coming and see how people would dress up and people voguing in the middle of the dance floor and it was just always such a vibe and I feel the essence of community sometimes gets lost now with people doing brand deals and it all now becoming very like business orientated but I feel like the essence of what you've grown has always been very authentic but always very community based mm, yeah it's interesting. Also, I have to say that within doing the party, I realized how much of a community there was. Because again, it was kind of pre-social media. It was, um, you know, I blogged, but it wasn't like many blogs of people like me. So when I would do the party, I was like, always like astounded to meet other people who look like me who dress like me and who also had like the same ideas. And like, you know, as a creative who 
came from a place of like thinking outside the box isn't cool. You know, doing X, Y, and Z is you being a what the trying to be white. You know, I was like to see people of color of like from all different worlds, and then also especially London. I was just like, whoa, like the world is so much bigger than I had imagined. Like, and for mm-hmm. me, that really gave me so much more um, strength because I, I didn't feel alone. And then I realized there is an actual community there, which also fed the desire to continue doing more things like this where I could meet people. I mean, there's even a girl who started off reading my blog. She's Mexican. She's from San Diego. She makes incredible art, but she was just a girl who read my blog and commented on my blog and, whatever. And then one day I was in LA like six years ago and I was like, Oh, I tweeted I'm in LA. And she's like, Oh, maybe I'll come drive and meet you. And I was like, you could kill me, but sure. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) Which we met. And the the beautiful thing about the people that I have been fortunate enough to meet is that everyone has literally been someone stranger or not has been someone that I connect with. And so when her and I met, we connected and it wasn't like, oh, you're a fan or you it was, like that whole concept to me is weird anyway. But when we met her and I just clicked and we're still we're friends. We're make, like we're about to do a collaboration for my brand with her art. Like and she lives in New York now. And it's just, you know, it's just the people that that I've been fortunate enough to meet have been like just friends that I haven't met yet. They're just basically people like me, which is really, really nice. Um, and that's also, again, like that's something that I'm very thankful for because I know that a lot of people who have like a quote unquote fan base, it's people who don't really know them. And I, I sometimes see those people on my Instagram. They don't know anything about me and they just found me and they're like, oh, you're cute or something like, you know, they don't really know. They don't have any connection to me. But then there are people that I that I meet on the street who are like, OK, I really connect with you on this or I have immigrant parents, too. And da, 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 da. so it's been a really cool journey meeting these meeting people in the community and has DJing kind of really fed into that because I've been in Paris with you and you'll be like I'm playing this party come let's hang out even I'll, I'll be like yeah Vash I'll be your booth bitch tonight I don't mind I'll come hang out with you in the booth and stuff but you know where along this kind of timeline did DJ kind of really feed into this because obviously I've seen you DJ at like Nicki Minaj's like Fendi launch or like you know YSL like you've DJed for so many global global corporate brands I guess music's really kind of played a foundation across even though you're multifaceted across different industries yeah so the the one part of my career that I didn't get to really talk about but I'm going to talk about now is um so the 1982 party started and it was a huge success and it was so successful that Q-Tip who is from the group Trap Call Quest who's also a producer and an incredible DJ himself um he was doing parties in New York City but he uh, heard about my party and was like I love what you're doing. I want you to come in with me and do a party with me. So I was like, okay, great. So my job was sort of to like connect with my community, my demographic, bring them out, make sure they were there, make sure he was all good. So sort of like overseeing, but also like just having many jobs. And we would, after every party and even before each party, we would discuss the music and discuss other things. And like all of the music he would talk about, I'd be like, yeah, I know that song. That song is so good. And the thing about him is that his, I mean, I know songs that he knows, but not every song. But he, he's like <laughs> such a, like a huge encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to music. So he would bring something up and I was like, yeah, I know that song. Oh, that song was from that era. Da, 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 da. And he's like, he's like, you really know good music. Like you should be DJing. Like, why don't you DJ? And 
he was really ultimately the person who sort of got me into DJing. At the time, I thought that it was inauthentic, which is something that people from our age group can identify with or understand. You know, in the beginning of it, I just felt like, oh, it's not, you know, there are actual DJs who have carried records in crates through clubs. Vinyls, yep. Exactly. <laughs> and so for me, I felt like what a disservice I would do to the culture if I was just like, here's me and my laptop, you know? But I quickly got over that. You know, I went to film school. I learned how to edit film literally by splicing it, taping it back together, loading film cameras in the dark so you didn't expose the film. And at the same time of me not wanting to be a DJ, I'm noticing that there were people who didn't go to film school who are now directors because they're using their iPhone or using this or using that. And to me, I didn't feel like that was weird. I felt like if people didn't have the opportunity that I did to put themselves in debt and go to film school and they were making films, I think I thought that that was cool. So then I think I slowly got around to the idea of like, well, why am I holding myself back from DJing? Because I, I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. So I ultimately just jumped into it. And so that's how I started DJing was because of Q-Tip. Oh my God, sick. So what are your some of your favorite spots in NYC? Because I think you first took me to Lovely Day. Oh my God. Two of my favorite places in New York. Yeah. They're my Vashti spots. What are some of your other favorite spots in New York? Um, I mean, uh, let's see. Gosh. Cafe Select is great. I like Cafe Select for drinks. Um, for If we're talking more about food, um, let me think. And one of the main reasons why I brought up food is because I think you were the first person that I knew to be vegan. Oh, yeah. It was before it was a trend and it was cool. But you were very always selective about where you would eat because of your nutrition your diet so that's why i'm bringing it up because even through social media you're very you're very open about being vegan and you know mental health and your body is your vessel and Vashti for me was the person that was like let's go here because they have good vegan snacks and i'd be like vegan snacks Vash, really but then now <laughs> those restaurants aren't vegan but what I like to do is go to any restaurant and figure out the vegan option I can work out. So, so yeah, so those places are good. I mean, as far as vegan places, there are, there's a place called by Chloe, which I think they have in London maybe now. Um, by Chloe is like a burger and French fry situation. It's How long called, have you been vegan? Gosh, no. Um, I've been, I started when I was 12. I had moments when I wasn't, but mm. for the last 10 years, like pretty, pretty hard, like pretty into it, not hardcore. Um, but yeah. On the subject of kind of mental health and things like that, how do you kind of make sure that you have a balance? Because I feel like being sometimes in the creative industry where everything is sometimes very forward facing and very surface level, how do you kind of make sure that you keep yourself balanced and look after your well-being and mental health? So for me, it's um, mental health, uh, and maintaining it is the same as exercise for me. Mm-hmm. So for me to stay fit or for me to stay fit in the way I like to, I work out pretty much every day. And for me, mental health is something that you have to maintain through exercise every single day, even if that means having five minutes of meditation or five minutes of speaking to <clears throat> a mentor or a family member that, you know, can position things for you better than you can see them clearly. You know, it's, it's, it's an ongoing job. 
and a job sounds daunting and it sounds like work, but to maintain it, it's, it's easier than waiting until a year later when you've reached the point of no return and Mm. it's harder for you to get out of it. So for me, the little bit of work every day is crucial. The other thing is learning the power of words because I think that we all sort of learn a sort of strange way of speaking to other people and to ourselves. Um, And I'm trying to unlearn the words right and wrong because I don't believe in those words so much anymore. And I also don't like to use them because it, there's too much connotation in them. So I'm trying, I'm searching for a word that's not right or wrong, but I guess I'm saying that, um, that the power of language is important. So, Mm. you know, um, if you say to yourself, like, you know, oh, this is the end of the world. And, da, da, da. and it's like, but is it, you know, we're so dramatic at, when we talk, mm. all of us, you know, oh, this is crazy. And it's like, is it crazy? <laughs> or is it just a little out of the norm, you know? So I think for me, it's just been um, unlearning the language that um, has been taught to me, which is the norm for all of us. And just sort of figuring out a better way to express myself. Um, and and also learning learning about feelings because again we mm. as human beings we walk around we we ask people how are you how are you doing how do you say it in london yeah what's up how you doing what's up yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, how, are you, how are you doing how are you doing yeah. <laughs> how are you doing um, That's so cute <laughs> but we never we never say like how are you feeling because that's ultimately the question we should be asking and mm. realistically most people never know how they feel. And I've tried this exercise with like friends or family. I'll be like, Oh, how are you feeling? And they're like, good. And I'm like, good's not a feeling. How are you feeling? And they're like, I'm okay. And I'm like, that's not a feeling. And it's interesting not to, you know, like make it a big deal, but it's interesting to see that, you know, you never really know how you feel because we're constantly answering. I'm good. I'm cool. I'm fine. And it's like, you know, there could be a moment where you're like, I'm sad or I'm stressed. and But we don't say those things because it's not even the question that people asked us. So then you're completely unaware all throughout the day. And then before you know it, you're like, why am I depressed and sad? And it's like, you've been mm. that way for a couple of days now, but you just didn't express it. it. Didn't know it. Mm. Yeah. So I think that that's also something important to me, which I'm also doing now with my partner, is asking, like, how are you feeling? To get kind of get a gauge because it's it's really so important and, and feeling is everything. You mm. know, if you're unhappy in something, you, it's really an indicator that you should be doing something else. Um, and I think that that's also, you know, our feelings, our, our gut instinct is what leads us to where we want to be and what we want to be doing rather than what's going to make me money. What's going to make me famous or, you know, it's just, it's the feeling what makes you mm. feel. And I think that uh, that also makes, for the most authentic, legendary, iconic people who just did something because they wanted to and they felt it. Yeah. And who's been some of your, kind of just to round up, who's been maybe some of your mentors along the way? Because you've had such, you know, amazing experiences and done so many amazing things. But I think think it's important, especially within our community as well, to kind of... um, educate and show people who have maybe helped you along the way or people who have inspired you encouraged you to make sure that you've kind of stepped up to the next level (laughs) as we say yeah you know I think that I have never had like a real mentor person 
I've, I've had people who have been bosses throughout my, like throughout my career who have been mentors to me. Mm. Um, and so one of them is a woman named Grace Harry. She's incredible. It's just her, she's professional and business oriented, but she's also very connected to the soul and to the heart and knows just so much. And she's a fascinating, incredible human being. Um, uh, and then Jamil GS, who I worked for a very long time ago, he's a photographer and he, um, he had a studio in New York city. So I worked with him there, but he taught me so much about the craft and taught me about vision. Um, Anthony Mandler, who is um, a music video director, commercial director, photographer. But, you know, when I was signed to the same label as him and I was writing music video concepts for him, he would invite me on every set he had and would have me shadow him. And, you know, my job was to stay right next to him and he would point out different angles and shots. And so that was something that was really important to me because it, it opened up my eye, but it also was so empowering to be able to be next to someone so important and creative and then have him show me things mm. uh, without any, you know, fear of me taking his job or, you know, like some people are afraid of that. And he was just totally open and, and very um, just wise. And I really appreciated him for that. Um, and I think honestly, my sister who is not someone who is in the business at all or understands half of what I do, but I think that, you know, being able to talk to her and, you know, she, isn't someone I go to with for advice, but she'll give me advice. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and the same thing with my partner, who's amazing. It's just, you know, being in this business, sometimes you lose sight of who you are at the, and it, it sounds weird, right? Because you no, think, oh, right. So yeah, before you know it, you're wrapped up into this world and you're, well, you want to be business oriented. You want to, you want to deliver and, you know, I'm a tomboy at heart. So there are times where I look back on my social media posts and I'm like straight hair, dress, heels, or, you know, and I'm like, who, like if someone came to my page right now and they didn't know me, they would think, Oh, who is this girl? She's this influencer girl who looks like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then I have to not have to, but sometimes my partner, Emil, he'll be like, you know, people know you for being a girl in streetwear or being a girl in sneakers. Maybe you should wear that to this party. And maybe, you know, mm. and it's, it's important because sometimes you have people around you who are like, Oh yeah, like this brand sent you clothes and you want to, you know, you want to make the client happy or you want to make your relationships happy. And then before you know it, you're like, wait, I like you're just morphing into something else. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So, yeah. But that actually leads me on to kind of one of the final questions I wanted to ask you is in how do you kind of pick who you want to work with? Because I feel sometimes when you are very much in the public eye and you're building your brand and, and building who you are as a brand, people throw things in like left, right and centre. And I've always been very keen. And um, I think it's very easy for us when you get to a certain level to be like, oh, I don't want to do that or I want to do that. But I feel like sometimes it does come down to choice. What kind of things or I would say objectives do you look for when you're thinking about who you want to collaborate with or who you want to work with? Um, I think for me, it's having a brand that is open to hearing me out um, or, you know, anyone, someone who, who can, um, it can be a fair collaboration, you know, even if it's a bigger brand who might not understand my vision, if they can at least do something different than, um, what they normally do. That's important to me. I think for any collaboration to be successful, both parties have to be open to each other 
and also be willing to compromise. So that's important to me. Um, and I think also now for me, sometimes it comes down to morally what the brand represents there. I mean, there was a brand that approached me to do um, a social media campaign and to model in it. And the brand is not known for being particularly um, kind to animals. And in fact, the opposite of um, abusing animals for their fur. Uh, and a lot of people wear this brand and a lot of people just don't know, but it was something that I had to say no to based off of their practices. And it, honestly, and when the job was brought to me, my manager, who is amazing, but he's totally not vegan or, or involved with animals, but he he knew right off the bat, he's like, this brand gets a lot of bad press. Um, and so I basically turned that down. So sometimes when it comes down to things like that, I'm for sure like, you know, I appreciate the offer and I'll be, you know, very like open and upfront in a polite way. Just, you know, I don't think our, you know, our, our values align. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that that's important. I think it's also important that sometimes you and a brand's values may not align, but if you're able to sort of evolve view of that brand, that's also important. You know, I Mm. think that, you know, representation is important. Maybe sometimes it's a brand that is catered to, a specific demographic that doesn't represent me, but then they approach me and then if, you know, oh, it need to You can open that door. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah. So what's next, Vashkiller? What's next for you? Because you married now. We're not even going to get into the personal life one, but you went to go and get married. You focused. I think for me right now, it's like, it's maintaining health, mental health, spiritual health as much as possible and sharing that journey with others. Um, I've been using my platform of dash.com to really share this experience, which has been a blessing because I think that for all of us to evolve, we need each other. It's important regardless of the times. And um, so I think that that's been nice. I think for me, it's just also um, doing more, doing, doing what I've been doing, but just doing more of it. So I'm ready. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. Sis. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, honestly, I appreciate you so much. And I think for me, like, uh, even if we're going to use this word influencer, which I hate, I prefer to say woman of influence because I do feel like, you know, you are someone who is not even only an icon to the new generation of girl, but just someone who was just so like, from the get-go was like, I don't have to be put in a box. And I feel like that's one thing I've always loved about you. Yes, I can do that. And yes, I can do that. And if you're going to throw me that check, I can also do that too, sis. But it was also, it was just like, always staying true to who you were. Like, and even when I'd see you walking down Mercer or I'd see you, like, it was always just like, always love. It was always a nice vibe and always just embracing us and who we were from London and just connecting and we can go anywhere in the world and you know it's so wild to me how our worlds have meshed so much in terms of like who we know and our friendship groups but just knowing that there's always been that love globally and just for me I just want to say just keep doing you sis there's so many of us who've been inspired by you thank you I have to say I have to say I don't make friends easily I, I just it's just my personality that like I don't and for whatever reason like meeting you Grace Charmody and everyone it was just like instant friendship because we were so aligned creatively just artistically but in just so many ways and it's like you know when I thought about I mean not to I'm not harping on my wedding but when I thought about my wedding who I wanted there I was like 
I know we don't get to see each other often, but I'm like, your family, like, I mean, you know, obviously if I didn't have a cat, you could stay here. But I'm like, my girl. That's nice. She knows my phobia for cats is real. She's focused. Yes. But I'm like, if anything, like, I feel like you guys are family. And, you know, and I, it's just having been able to travel and just like meet you guys and meet just the people in our community and our circle. Mm. It's just like phenomenal. And like, I'm forever like connected to you guys, no matter how long it's been that we haven't seen each other or talk, like it's family. Agreed. And sis, I can't wait when you next come to London, I'm going to take you to Roti Jupa, which is the best Trini shop in South. It's in South London. We can go and get a bus up show. And my, my ex flatmate was Trini. So I'm, I'm down I'm with ready. it, sis. I'm ready. I'm ready. Me, Palori, all of it into oh, it, sis. I'm so ready. <laughs> so we'll connect soon. I love you so much. I Thank you, you so much. We'll connect soon for sure. Okay, guys. And that's another episode of TTYA Talks with my killer, my hitter, Vashti Kola. That's me, Irene TTYA. We'll catch you on the flip side for another episode soon. See ya. Mm-hmm.